everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we ask people to come up, stand up on stage and do some tragedy. Uh, so that's whatever tragedy means to them. So we get performers from different parts of the arts. We get comedians, storytellers, spoken word artists, musicians, all sorts of people who we think are super talented. We ask them to get up on stage and do what tragedy means to them. Um, what we try to have a standard tragedy, we try to make people cry until they laugh and uh, laugh until they cry. And we also want to make a safe space to talk about unsafe things. Uh, so because of that, um, so, so expect some laughs and feel free to laugh uh, whenever you find something funny, but also expect to see tragedy on this stage. I mean, when you're going down the street, any time in your life, you might be struck by tragedy. You know, a car could hit you any time, and that would be tragic. But uh, it would be unexpected. In this room, we should expect to see tragedy. There will be tragedy happening on this stage at some point in the evening. Sad things will be talked about. That might be, that might be you know, there's a lot of things that are sad that might make you feel lots of things. So be expecting to feel things, and then we'll be, we'll be all right. We'll get through this all together. It'll be delightful. Um, but yes, so that's what you should expect. Uh, Stand-up tragedy are doing a load of shows up in, in Edinburgh this year. At 7.30 in the Banshee Labyrinth every day, we basically have a different lineup of tragic performers, but we also sometimes have special guest hosts and we have special guest uh, collaborations happening. Uh, so we're here every day doing tragedy apart from Tuesdays when it's uh, Getting Better Acquainted, which is a conversational podcast. Uh, where So it'll be me sat on stage talking to somebody. Still good, but not exactly like this. So don't come on a Tuesday and expect this. Um, so yeah, um, our up-and-coming um, special guest editions we've got on Saturday, we've got tomorrow, in fact, we've got Tragic Violence, which is a night um, where Casual Violence, who are a sketch comedy group, are going to do their most tragic sketches. And it's going to be really funny tomorrow night. So if you want to have a lot of laughs, come tomorrow night. Dark and funny, yeah, dark and funny, but, but funny. Um, so yeah, um, and then on uh, Sunday, we've got Other Tragedies, which is, uh, there's a cabaret night called Other Voices Spoken Word Cabaret, and they're taking over stand-up tragedy for the night to bring tragedies from other voices, other tragedies. And then on Monday, we have guest host Keith Jarrett, who is an amazing spoken word artist. So those are the shows that we're doing in the Banshee. We're also producing my solo show, which is happening at 12.05 at the Cabaret Voltaire uh, every day, apart from Mondays. And that is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. And if you think it's dark in here tonight, it's really dark, my show. It's not a comedy, so don't come expecting laughs. But if you, are, if you like sad things come and hear about all my sad things from all over through my life uh yeah it's, it's a it's a laugh fest it is not a laugh fest so yes um so that's happening oh i should say as well i'm sorry about this this is the sad men section we we have to get through it um but after that there will be proper excellent tragedy we are part of the pbh free fringe which means it's absolutely free to come through and sit in these seats <clears throat> art that's free at point of contact is something that i really believe in but we are living in tragic times things are getting cut left, right and centre and the arts are hurt just like everybody is hurt. So that means two things. It means we understand if you can't pay, pay very much money at the end. We understand that because it is tough times and tragic times. But also, if you can afford to give money at the end, then that would be great because it's a really important time to support the arts. It's not just tragic times for the arts and for the whole society in general. It's also tragic times for me because I lost my job two years ago and I'm trying to make it as an artist, which means I have no money. So uh, if you feel sympathy towards me at any time in the night, if you're like, God, that man is so awkward. Uh, we should just give him some money to make him feel a little better about himself. Uh, then do, please, uh, at the end. 
mind, um, but only what you can afford. So yes, you can make friends with the tragedy on Facebook. You can follow the tragedy on Twitter. And if you talk about the night, the hashtag is tragic moments. And let's get on with the show. So we're going to have the first performer coming on now. She's hosting Spark London True Storytelling uh, for a couple of nights, this uh, days, in fact, afternoons at 1.45 at Cowgate Head up to uh, on the 23rd and the 24th. She's also doing loads of other comedy spots all over the place. So you should definitely look out for her. Put your hands together, everyone, for Charlie Harrison! Nice to be here. Stand up tragedy. I love this night. It's a lovely night. Um, I've taken the theme quite literally. Stand up tragedy. I do do comedy, so I'm just going to do some really unfunny comedy now. Um, I'm joking. I'm hilarious. Um, no, I, I, I'm, what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to tell you about my most tragic gig. Does that sound all right to you? Because like, everyone loves to... If you ever talk to comedians, they'll always be like, you know, you'll be like, oh, I smashed it last night, it's a great gig, whatever. And then they're like, tell me about the times you failed. That's, that's what people want to hear about, which is why stand-up tragedy is really good, because you can talk about stuff like that. But um, So as I said, I do stand-up comedy. Um, I'm also a feminist. Oh, a feminist at the fringe. Who'd have thought it? I know, right? <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> uh, but I haven't always called myself a feminist, believe it or not, but I feel like doing stand-up comedy as a woman, has forced me to become a feminist, right? Um, I didn't really want to be one. I just sort of wanted to get on with it, like the blokes, right? But things will happen to you as a female stand-up that will make you be a, uh, become a feminist. Because um, when, like, uh, women tell me they're not a feminist now, I find it really odd. I think it's, like, someone of colour being like, I'm not really into racial equality, or a fox that's really into fox hunting. That's how, <laughs> that's how I see it now. But I used to think very differently. And I'm going to tell you about a gig I did. Um, it was probably my 11th gig. So for those that don't, that's really Bambi in the headlights kind of territory. That's where you're kind of just trying it out. I'd kind of been all right up till that point. I'd been liked, I hadn't been loved. Um, I was sort of still trying it out. And I turn up to this gig in Finsbury Park. And uh, yeah, Finsbury, fans of Finsbury Park in. Uh, they come to all my shows since this gig, since this gig. It was so tragic, they uh, follow me around. Um, I get there. And I hear it's like an open mic. I don't really know that much about the scene at the time. I get there and it's quite clear it's kind of a book show. There's a big stage. It's kind of a big deal. Um, and I'm not going to get a spot. But me and my friend, we decide to stay. We decide to stay anyway and just enjoy the show, have a drink, learn a little bit about comedy. So we sit down and we, the, the, the show starts. This guy gets on stage, right? And he's like, it's this big guy, big beard. Some of you might know him. We can play guess who this, uh, this promoter is later if you want. Um, he gets on and then I recognise him from the Edinburgh I'd just been to with you guys, Stand With Tragedy. And it was this guy who runs a night in a, in a it's, I wouldn't call it a gig, I'd call it more of um, a crack den, uh, <laughs> where, this is gonna sound like a lie, but it's not. You go in and there was just people sat around on plastic chairs with like plastic cups, getting fucked and, not fucked, sorry, that sounds like an orgy, getting wasted. <laughs> <laughs> but he was there um, with his pants down, um, getting an erection to the countdown theme tune. This was a this was a show that I saw at the end of French. Anyway, he was in there. Uh, I went in and it was all everyone was going. Well, I sort of joined in, whatever. It was bizarre. <laughs> Seeing the show too. Um, <laughs> And he, it was him, right? So there's a man there, I'm thinking, oh, I've seen him, I've seen him before. Oh yeah, I've seen his penis. Um, he carries on, he MCs, whatever, whatever. Gets to the middle of the show, the interval. 
And I have had two glasses of wine at this point. So I go up to him and I think I'm quite a brazen person, or at least I pretend to be. So might as well tr try my chances as a spot. And I say, yeah, I recognise you from Edinburgh. You did that weird show where you got your cock out. Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I'm here I'm here because I really wanted <laughs> seeing your penis. Uh, <laughs> happens more often than you'd think. Uh, <laughs> and he says, yeah, yeah. And I say, I came here to get a spot, whatever. You know, if you put me on, blah, blah, blah. You know, instill that nervous person I sort of used to be. And he was like, oh, yeah, now I'll give you a spot. And he had this sort of crazed look in his eye as he said it, and I thought, cool, cool. <laughs> then he gets on stage, the second half starts, and he's up there, and hello, okay, ladies and gentlemen, there is a woman in the audience that has seen my penis. Then he gets a chance to talk about his cock for about seven minutes, which I think is sort of what he likes to do. <laughs> And then he goes, we weren't supposed to give anyone a spot at this night, right? We weren't supposed to. There have been people asking me, but I gave her a spot because she's fit. Please welcome to the stage, Charlie Harrison, everybody. Okay, good start. We're starting well. <laughs> I get up there. There, you know, okay. Everyone just thinks I'm an audience member that he's like got up as a joke. Then, not only that, there is a drum kit on the side of the stage here. Okay, I'm 11 gigs in. I'm not telling like boom boom jokes. I don't really anyway. There we are. I'm telling these like weird stories that I used to tell, and he's going boom boom. <laughs> and everyone's laughing at him. He's take you know everyone's laughing at what he's doing. And I'm there because I wasn't really trained in any of this or anything like that. I'm just there going, <laughs> you know, as you're trained to do as a girl, you're trained to be like oh funny aren't you and I do all of those things and then my horrible set comes to an end and he comes over to me and he takes down his trousers and he says look at my penis again why don't you touch it right in a gig everyone's going mental for it and again I do the girly thing, and I, I can't even remember what I said, but it was so shit. It was like, oh, A for effort, or so, oh, something horrible, but like, nothing that stood up for myself, you know? And I just went, oh, A for effort, oh, and then left the stage, and he said, oh, that wasn't very good, but she has got a nice ass, though. So that was my 11th gig. Um, and it could have been somewhere where I just decided to stop. Because like a lot, of, a lot of women do start doing comedy, but the problem is things like this happen, right? And they, they fall out very early on. There's loads and loads of really, really funny women, but things like this happen, they, they fall out really, really early on. Um, but I didn't. And now I've been doing comedy, I've probably done like 300 gigs. Yes. And I think now I would say to him, like, I, I just want to, can you just let me say to him what I would have said with the experience that I have now? Yeah. Is Because, right? like, I've been wanting to say it for a while. So I would have said, listen, Bob. <laughs> listen up, right? You have, for all of the other acts, who are all men, who are all your mates, right? You have sat down and you have watched their stuff politely for five minutes. But I get up and you make loads of comments about what I look like and take advantage of the fact that I'm new, you get your cock out, you ask me to touch it, you sit on the drums and you go da 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 and it's not acceptable. So if you could sit down for five minutes and just listen to me, that would be the appropriate thing to do. 
Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, what, all I'm trying to say is, he's a dick. Um, I'm glad I didn't stop comedy. Um, I did a gig last night. He was there. He fucking was terrible, and I was brilliant. So, <laughs> I win. I win. Thank you very much. Cheers. Charlie Harrison, everybody. Right, so our next performer, she is uh, doing a show called How Was It For You at Clark's Bar uh, until the 30th of August at 3.30pm. Put your hands together, everyone, for Sarah Hay! Thanks, hi. Oh, hello. Uh, yes, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a show and it's about um, love, oh, I can't say anything, sorry. It's about love, lust and loss, which I think is like inherently tragic. Um, but... Uh, I basically, um, I'm gonna do a bit that didn't make the cut for the show, um, cause it's sort of like deleted scenes. Um, and it didn't make the cut cause mainly it's too much about the film Interstellar and I couldn't I couldn't like fit that in the, in like the story. It just didn't, didn't have space. I was like, she goes to the cinema, no. So, uh, so this bit is about Interstellar really. And it's like the stuff that didn't make the show. So basically if you like this, then you should come to the show because it's actually all better than this. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, so if you haven't seen the film Interstellar, it's, in, it's essentially Inception in space. And if you haven't seen um, Inception, it's, I really don't know where you've been to be honest. Uh, so this uh, little, I'm a poet by the way, and this poem is called, um, What My Life Would Be Like If It Was Written by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> a year ago today, I was having sex. I'm sorry if that's crude or inappropriate, but it's true. I was. <laughs> Having sex. With you. I know I was there. And I know for a fact I've got the date right, because I have a certificate. Not for the sex, that would be weird, but for the reason we were having middle-of-the-night celebration sex. That kind of all-consuming consummation that only happens in films and studio flats in northwest London, on top of the duvet, on your side of the bed, on November 14th, 2013. That kind of rough but real sex that in retrospect wasn't between us at all, but was for me, because of me, and all about me. And no, I don't mean it like that. I'm sure you got yours. I'm struggling to remember the specifics, but if we're going on an average, you probably enjoyed it more than I did, and that's okay. <laughs> If I remember rightly, it wasn't about that. I needed you, and as always, you obliged. But now, November one year on, and I'm staring at that date framed in a room I've been staying in since I ripped you from my side, like it holds that night in perfect conservation. As if our bodies combine around each printed number, stamping our reckless sensuality onto paper to remain forever there in golden framed remembrance of us. I mean, there aren't many objects in this room that immediately take me back to such a specific time, place, and action. Not dated, anyway. No messages in the books that line my walls, dropping to the floor with the gravity of this specific memory. Oh, sorry, that was a bit uh, reference to something I said in the bit before the title. Actually, I'd like to go back to the introduction to this, if I can, and, and tell myself to stop before I start. To remind the me that's talking now that she might regret what she's about to say, or by this point, if she doesn't listen, has already said. But I'm in full flow now, and so I ignore myself, and I remain outside myself looking in, unaware which me it is that's talking, and who it is I'm warning, and, and I want to tell you something new. But someone once told me that every story that exists has already been told, which makes anything I say to you already seem old. But surely that's only true of fiction, and no one could make this up, however hard they try. 
A few days ago, I watched a man travel further than most minds can comprehend, only in order to return to a moment in his life over and over. And granted, I was watching from the safety of a cinema seat, but that didn't stop me from going back in my mind to the moment where I kissed you suggestively, rousing you from sleep with the knowledge that you would bring me release for the excitement that I brought home in a frame that would eventually commemorate something that hadn't yet happened, unaware that it would be in our most intimate moment that I would start to pull away at light year speed. And I might as well be as far as Saturn right now as I live both that moment and this simultaneously. In the film, the man is both himself and the self that he was, both the catalyst and the consequence, and I understand that paradox as I live both the action and the result. As I take you in my arms over and over, while the other me, the older me, whose hands have got used to holding themselves, stands over a double bed that she no longer owns and shouts at a couple that no longer exist to stop before they start. You are making a mistake that can never be undone. By doing this, you are unraveling a well-tied knot of her loving you because you love her and consoling her when she doesn't win. And this is the moment when everything changes and you could stay the same if you want to. But I might as well be screaming this in fucking binary because I'm ignored like I exist only in a time loop, which reminds me of a conversation I had with my father once. <laughs> I'm sat outside the bathroom, back to wall, while he shaves or brushes his teeth or something not relevant to the memory. I, he is telling me that time travel is impossible and, and I'm arguing back in an eight-year-old way, but he wins and I laugh and we go for breakfast in the market behind Liverpool Street, or that could be another memory amalgamated together for the sake of clinging onto faded times gone by. And as child me sits outside a bathroom I haven't used since, I ignore myself, my future self, standing inches away, clinging to my father like a limpet that he is unaware of as he wins our argument and laughs and takes me for breakfast, all the while oblivious to the fact that he is holding the hands of his daughter then and now. One as real as ever and the other existing only in a metaphor that simultaneously I am sharing on stage years in the future. Future me, which for you is the me that's talking now, delves deep into her memory to both keep her father alive for a moment in time and simultaneously prove him wrong. Time travel does exist. Because if it didn't, I couldn't be both there and now. And if I couldn't be there, then I would forget him and he would continue to not exist. And so I believe in science fiction. I believe in time travel, not as a concept to progress the human race, but to keep my father alive, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the storyline to a film I saw, which means this is beginning to sound a lot like fiction and therefore a story that has already been told. Which, of course, it has. Last November. Look, a year ago today, I wrote a piece about my father, about it being 12 years since he passed and how in the future I would move past the point of no return and now it's like time got stuck and I'm both past that point and living it and nothing has changed. Like the rings of Saturn, I spin around this subject every year until I'm dizzy with thoughts of death. And every version of me that will ever be is caught in a loop of everything that will ever be. And sometimes it feels like I'm floating through space with nothing to stop me from falling through a black hole of all the things I've lost. And I don't even have Anne Hathaway to keep me company. <laughs> or my father. I don't even have you because we did have the sex that started all this. And I don't have enough special effects to recreate our fireworks. All I have is a cinema stub for a film I saw a muddled and difficult to prove definition of time travel and a frame certificate dated a year ago today. And I wanted this to be more coherent. 
I wanted to represent the relevance of the moments we take for granted and somehow find a way to comprehend how every year that goes by takes me further from the people I've lost. And I wanted to tie it all together neatly, like a, like a story. So even if it is familiar, it ends somehow. And I wanted to make it rhyme. But I don't think I did any of those things. I think I'll leave that kind of stuff to Christopher Nolan in future. He seems to know what he's doing after all. Cheers. Sarah Hirsch, everybody! Okay, so our next uh, performer, she uh, normally keeps the time, uh, but now she's going to be standing on stage. And who's going to keep the time? Who knows? Uh, she is an academic as well as a producer of Stand Up Tragedy. And uh, she, uh, she said that you can find her on LinkedIn if you uh, want to, because she's an academic and that's, that's what they do. They don't, know, they don't go on about, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So, yes. Put your hands together, everyone, for Liz Bailey! Thank you, Dave. I'm not good at this bit because I'm normally sat there not doing this, but um, I seem to manage it okay. Um, so as Dave said, yes, I, I, I am an academic. And uh, so this is part true story, part lecture, part origin story, part manifesto. It's about how I came to be doing social policy and why I think it matters. and. It's the tragedy of the welfare state. Because I do think that in the last 30 years, one of the greatest tragedies that we've had is, is the demise of the welfare state. Now, this is something that's quite contested within the subject of social policy, whether we think that actually the 1980s were as problematic as we think they are, the end of institutions, or if it's about the ideas and the words. But ideas and words are important. We are in the PBH spoken word section of the Free Fringe, so I, I do think an emphasis on words and ideas is important. Because it's how it changes what we say when we say welfare. In the US, we talk about welfare queens. In the UK, we talk about welfare scroungers. When we talk about healthcare, we talk about efficiency. When we talk about education, we talk about human capital development. But that's not what a welfare state is. That's not its intention. A welfare state is a state that looks out for the welfare of its people. And that's what I think we lost in the 80s. So for me, um, the story starts much as they always do at university, uh, you know, in the pubs, fighting the revolution, becoming a socialist in that way. Um, I studied government, I studied history. And when I studied government, I became very taken with the idea of the social contract. The idea that we enter into a contract with the state. We give something up. We give up some rights in order to be protected by the state. But that's the key. The state should be promoting, protecting, promoting and protecting our welfare, enhancing our lives. That was what it was for me. I also was highly influenced by the TV series The West Wing. Anyone familiar with that? Yeah. There's going to be a reoccurring theme about arts and cinema throughout my set. Um, I don't know why they're a key point for me. I do watch a lot of movies and TV, so that might be why. Um, but for me, it showed an idealized vision of what it could be like in the US, what a government could be like. It could be a president who cared, who was socialist and leftist and cared about those sorts of things. 
So for me, I wanted to be Leo McGarry. I wanted to be the chief of staff, the one contributing and making things better without the alcoholism. <laughs> and the other thing, the really, really nerdy thing, was I was studying history alongside, and I got obsessed with the creation of the American welfare state. Yes, we do have a welfare state. Sort of. Still. Kind of. Well, we did in the 30s, anyway. FDR, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, created something called the New Deal. Well, in fact, there's two New Deals. And like with all good social policy, it began because of economic and social change. In this case, it was the crashing of the banks and the Great Depression, which left people devastated, destroyed, unemployed, hungry, starving, and dying. So what are you going to do? Well, the two bits of the New Deal, the first bit will maybe sound a bit familiar, where you uh, take your economic policy and try to promote and protect the banks and restart your economy, maybe throwing a lot of money at the banks. Vaguely familiar to anybody in the room? Yeah, history does repeat. Learn from the past. It's very important. It's one of the key themes of my life. Um, the second bit, the second bit, the second bit's the fun bit. The second bit is social policy. It's the creation of the American welfare state. And it's about, it is capitalism. So it is about job creation, but it's also where we started. We started with social security. The idea that if you weren't in work, if you were sick, if you were old, if you were ill, someone would look after you. Someone would care about you. And that's what a state should do, right? And then on top of that, it was about making jobs. And the Works Project Administration was an amazing thing. And if you go around the US, still, you'll see some of the things they set up. They got in builders and craftsmen and workers to make these enormous roads and bridges and buildings and things. And it was about creation and work and community and pulling in and being together. But my favorite thing about it was the second thing that they did, which is the Federal Project One. This is the Federal Workers Project, the Federal Writers Project, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Music Project. If you want to know more about it, I, there's a film I can recommend um, called The Creatable Rock. Again, film theme. Um, it's about how great it was and how creating a job for artists, creating something that was different, some welfare state that wasn't just about jobs, but was about what kind of jobs and society we want to have. And that was amazing to me, and that, and that was what I wanted to do. So I went and I worked for not-for-profits in New York doing arts and education policy. I think I might have missed the boat on the socialism in the States, though. Uh, George Bush was president. Uh, so not a lot of that was happening. And uh, I didn't think socialism was probably going to come back around. Maybe it was. I don't know. Might have now. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so I thought. I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and that's how I came to my adopted country. I came over to do my master's, and I thought, I will see how a socialist revolution actually took off and carried on, and how it's still working, and how it could be. I'll see. I'll know. And it was, and it was great. I came over, I learned about the Fabians, I learned about William Beveridge, who created the social assistance program. He had these five giants that social policy attacks, want, disease, idleness, squalor, ignorance. I don't care much for the idleness one, but the other four are pretty good. <laughs> and that's 1944 Education Act, 1948 creation of the National Health Service, the 
National Insurance and National Assistance Act. It's great. It's everything you want. The three pillars of the welfare state. Everything. The full person. Caring about them in all their aspects. It was a beautiful thing. But the darker side of my master's was learning that that wasn't true anymore. The institutions were there. This is highly contested in the field. If the institutions are there, then the welfare state is still there. Yes? But no. The ideas and the words had changed. But at the time, I didn't notice. I didn't notice the significance. I thought it was fine. Sure, things had changed in the 80s. Retrenchment, restructuring, those are the things we say. But what do those mean? Didn't seem to mean anything. New Labour was in power. Everything seemed OK. I thought, oh, right. I'll work in education policy, and it'll be great. And then the election happened. And the coalition was elected. And it didn't seem so great. And I started doing my, my PhD, and I started doing it on 1980s education policy, because I thought if I knew where we were coming from, I'd know where we were going to. But the tragedy is I didn't realize the tragedy of socialism. I didn't realize it had come to an end, and it had stopped, and the language and the words had changed until I watched a film. Again, film theme. I watched The Spirit of 1945 by Ken Loach. Anybody seen it? Yeah. Yep. Like it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I had a negative reaction to it. <laughs> kind of like uh, to an, a curry that's gone a little bit off. Um, the first half of the film is amazing. It's brilliant. It's about the creation of the welfare state. It's uh, interviews with the people who did it. It's really inspiring. It's really lovely. But then, like a punch to my gut, something that sort of codified everything that had been building in my brain at that moment, the 1980s happened. And he does it in such a way that it's boom, 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 privatization, removal of services. And for me, I cried, and I cried, and I didn't get over it. And I thought I wouldn't get over it. I thought, okay, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Why am I studying this? And then Margaret Thatcher died. <laughs> and I don't know if you, you've noticed that there's this theme about movies, but um, I do like a good narrative. I could like a good plot arc. I like bookends to things. And for some reason, that, that was a bookend for me. It's like a switch flipped inside me. And I said, oh, OK. That death means something. That means something to me. That means the end of something. That's a figure of the new right that's dead. That means that movement is dead. That means that's the end of something. But whereas Ken Loach was trying to argue that it could be, it would be again socialism, I, I don't agree. Now, I don't think it's the neoliberalism, the focus on the individual, the focus on the market that's going to be the driving force, but I don't know what it will be. And that's why I study education, because it allows us to have a critical mind and speak to power and think about the things that have been before and what could come next. That's why I study history. That's why I study the history of education, so we know where we're going and where we can go next. I don't know which one it'll be, and I don't know what form it'll take, but I kind of think that's up to all of us. Thank you. Liz Bailey, everybody! And Jesus, was she depressed after that film. I mean, that was like three months or something of like, my friend Liz was gone. But then she came back when Thatcher died, it was fun. Right, so, 
Yeah. Um, right, our, la our last performer, uh, he is filling in at the last minute, which is an amazing thing for him to be doing. Uh, he's doing a show in this room after this show. So if you want to stay, get a drink and come back, you can see this man perform. And so, you know, this is a try before you buy situation. So, you know, when do you get that? Not very often in life. You're getting it now. So, everybody's doing a show in here called Danger Man after this show. Put your hands together for Matthew Harvey! Good evening. Are you all all right? Now, what I really expected there was for you to all say, oh, no, I'm actually feeling a little bit tragic. So can we try that again? <laughs> Good evening. Are you all all right? Yeah, that was a, that was a tragic sound. Thank you. Um, like in the introduction, I am a last-minute replacement. So I was upstairs there. I was supposed to be flying, but what was really going is that where in this city of joy and this festival of excitement, can I find a story of personal tragedy? It's racking my brains. Uh, and then I remembered as far back as last night. Um, where, and this is exactly true. My audience was 20% canine. Um, by that, I don't mean the room was full of some kind of weird mutants. No, there were four people and a dog. Um, and to make matters work, worse, that dog was called Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> Scooby, I could have handled, Scrappy-Doo, you know, it, I think it broke me. Um, so uh, I wrote a little poem um, on my way home. Uh, it's called My Fringe Life, a poem by Matthew Harvey, aged in his 30s. <laughs> because dogs, have four legs, they count as two audience members. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> um, I, 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 the thing I find, um, which to me is kind of a personal tragedy, is that poetry can be quite a difficult thing to sell to people. You know, people quite often say, oh, I don't like poetry. Whereas no one will say, I don't like films, or I don't like music. Yeah, you don't listen to one song by one direction and decide that you hate all music. <laughs> it's close, exactly. <laughs> they almost ruin it for everybody. But at the same time, people have a bad experience of poetry, maybe at school, um, and then they just dismiss all poetry. Even if you don't like what I do here, don't let that stop you, okay? Keep searching. Um, I can understand at times because sometimes if poetry gets a little bit preachy, you don't need that if a poet is trying to push a certain agenda onto you. And you know, it can be a bit much. Uh, no one needs to be told how to live their life by a poet. It's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Having said that, however, I do believe there was is one issue that I think needs greater awareness. So I have got a little bit of advice. And if you could take it on board and maybe just digest it. And remember, 
If we ever find ourselves a pedestrian crossing together at some point in the future, don't press the button if I've already pressed it. <laughs> Can you not see that's a futile act? Can you not see that would be a lost cause? Or do you think that my button pressing skills are somehow inferior to yours? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I've met your sort before. Ooh, this is how you do it. I'll make these lights change faster. I'm better at pressing than you, you weak fingered bastard. <laughs> and as I try and suppress the rage that's building inside, you blatantly, and without any visible signs of remorse, commit one of life's more unforgivable crimes <laughs> by pressing the button again a further five or six times in quick succession. Now this is not something I can forgive or get over. No bridge can span this behavioural rift because I know if we have this sort of carry-on at a pedestrian crossing, imagine what it would be like if we're both waiting for a lift, which is fine. If, say, I'm going down and you're going up. But if we're both going in the same direction, what the fuck? <laughs> I hate to be the one to burst this particular bubble, but the fact that that little button there is illuminated means I've already pressed it without too much trouble. And then, of course, we'll have to stand together in the overbearingly oppressive silence that can only come from getting into a lift with one who has abused their button-pressing privileges. <laughs> we'll stand there, eyes forward, silence. I'll pretend to read the emergency evacuation notice. You'll think I'm being safety conscious, but no. I'm seething. I'm making a mental list of all your character flaws. I bet you own a copy of Sting's Greatest Hits. <laughs> I bet you think that Bono actually would be a worthwhile recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I bet you enjoy watching the hospital-based television drama Grey's Anatomy and think that the musical episode in particular is a high point of televisual entertainment <laughs> instead of being a complete waste of everyone's fucking time. I bet you <laughs> go to farmer's markets on Sundays and buy pickles and jams made out of things like damson and twins fucking twins that you don't even use no I've reached boiling point but by now it's too late you've alighted at your required floor and left me here alone full of hate I mean, just how selfish can one person be? And there is no coming back from this. What you see before you is just a shell. A dried up husk of a man lost in button pressing etiquette hell. <laughs> My soul is being ripped apart. And this could have all been avoided right at the start. So please. 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 <laughs> For the sake of my fragile mental health, keep your button pressing fingers to yourself. Thank you very much. Cheers. Matthew Harvey, everybody. And he's in this room. If you go and get a drink. 
But before that, we're going to end the show. So, yeah. So, um, thank you very much for coming to the tragedy today. Uh, if you've enjoyed this tragedy that you've seen before you, uh, consider giving some money back uh, to us. Uh, we, we're not embarrassed by paper money. We won't, we won't be ashamed uh, to be seen holding paper money. Although, I've discovered that, uh, that the, in, in Scotland, you can get one-pound notes, and that's a lovely way to troll us if you want uh, to, to make us feel like excited about our bucket take. Just put one-pound notes in, and then we'll be really upset at the end. And that'd be a tragedy in itself. Or you could put some more than that, whatever you think it's worth. And of course, only if you can afford it. Uh, and only if you know if you can give something back to the arts or to my rent, either of those would be great. Uh, if you want to review the show, you can review it on the Ed Fringe uh, website. That would be great to get some audience reviews. That helps people to find out about the show. We've got different lineups every night. So if you want to come back, if you've enjoyed the night tonight, uh, come back another night, you might hate it. Uh, if you hated the night tonight, then come back another night you might love it different acts every night uh, so if you want to find five different things to see that you might want to see come here try before you buy pick and mix as we like to think of ourselves so yes uh, that is basically it but I'm kind of afraid of silence I kind of had a complicated childhood which you, childhood, which you can find out about at 12.05 every day at the Cabaret Voltaire apart from Mondays uh, but yeah so because I had a complicated childhood I uh, I, don't, I like don't like silence and I like don't know how to stop speaking unless you know someone like I don't know clapped or something like that maybe feel more comfortable with myself and my crippling anxiety and complications and thank you very much the tragedy is now over it's time to go